down and study. <laughs> well, welcome to uh, InTown U, which is short for InTown University. I understand that none of these courses are accredited, so not yeah, not yet. You can audit, though, for a, for a cheaper price. Come on down. Uh, there's such a, a large gathering of people in the back there. You guys should all just sit down and enjoy what is about to happen. Uh, if you don't mind, if you could sit kind of in this general area, uh, or I can just glare sidelong at you guys, you know, for or, or you guys for the class. That's fine, too. Um, yeah, and if you're not staying for the class, if you could take your conversations to a, to a different... Uh, yeah, is, just leave. Is that better? Should I stop <laughs> sugarcoating it? Yeah, get out of here. Uh, well, welcome. This is the second part of our class on the Trinity. Um, and uh, we started with the Spirit last week. Does that, does that feel backwards to anyone? It does to Scott, but everyone, but everyone else had the correct answer of saying it did not feel backwards at all. Um, so this week we're going we're gonna to discuss the sun, and uh, Elise Peterson and I are going are gonna, to uh, co-teach this, and I just went ahead and gave her the hardest parts. So what's going to happen um, is I'm going to kind of do some introductory stuff and then go through some of the, the Christological heresies that actually resulted in what we refer to as, as the main Christological creeds in church history. Is anybody already bored with, with all those words that I'm saying? Okay. So I have a handout here of, of the creeds, so if you could take those and, and pass them around. Um, and then Elise is going to come up and, and give us some very sort of practical um, ways that, that understanding the second person of the Trinity actually impacts our worship of him and impacts the way we think about him, the way we relate to him, and all of that. So if you weren't with us last week, um, Scott and Hannah did a great job of, of really introducing the concept of the Trinity, which is very, very difficult. And, and then I, I was really excited because I felt like they, they kept it um, as what I call in a very why does this matter to me on Monday morning sort of way in helping us understand how we relate to the Spirit, how God being a triune God actually changes our worship and changes the way that we live. So that was great. If you weren't able to be here, um, you can listen to it online, so I'd highly recommend that. So just by way of introduction, what we're doing this morning is we're looking at the second person of the Trinity, and that is different than actually looking at a full Christology, which is the theology of Christ. Okay, we don't have time to actually go through a, a full understanding of, of who Jesus is, who Christ is, Messiah, and how Jesus the human and, and Jesus the God interrelate. Um, so I just wanted to make that pretty clear. Like, if you were expecting Christology, we're going to be leaving a lot of things out because really what we're trying to get at here is who is Jesus as he relates to the Trinity. Okay, so that's number one. Um, and then the second main thing that I, that I want to preface before we get into the, the heresies is that hindsight is 2020, especially when it concerns theology. And so, as you can already see with the, the two creeds that I've printed for you, and, and Scott and Hannah referenced the Nicene Creed quite a bit last week, so I probably won't do that as much this, uh, this afternoon, but these creeds were written uh, over 100 years apart, 
And so we're talking about one of the, one of the firmest statements of Christological um, orthodoxy doesn't come about in the church until 451. And that can either cause us a lot of um, disconcertion, disconcernment, there it is, uh, in that, well, you know, how, how did the church live and worship without having correct doctrine all those years? And I think one of the things that I would like for us to come away with after we look at some of these uh, heresies and then kind of looking at these orthodox statements is that uh, God's spirit and the way that God works in the world and through his church happens over time, and it happens in time, and it happens in culture. And it's a process, and we don't need to necessarily fear that. And so now we can look back with, with clearer vision and, and hold firmly to these things that at the time uh, the church was really, really wrestling with and struggling with. This didn't just get handed down on high. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't interpreting some divine book or anything like that. So it's serendipitous that Brian uh, referenced superheroes quite a bit because uh, I, I owe this to one of my professors, Todd Miles, at Western Seminary. But um, one of the easiest ways to think about the main Christological heresies, of which there were many in the first few hundred years of the church, is to think about them through the lens of different superheroes, okay? So the first one I don't have a superhero for, but Scott actually talked about it a lot last week, is Arianism. And, and uh, that's the idea that there was a time when the second person of the Trinity was not. And so basically it was a denial that that God the Son exists eternally, and so basically it's saying that he was created and so the church rejected this, and that's where we get the Nicene Creed. And Scott talked a lot about that last week, so I'm not going to get into it. But that's where we have that very specific language in the Nicene Creed about God of God, light of light, true God of true God. That's very directly contra the Arian heresy. They're, they're trying to make it very clear. We really, really, really believe that Jesus is God. And so whatever it means that he's the first, the firstborn from the dead, it cannot mean that he was at one time not existing. It's good to get my daughter on the uh, recording. <laughs> I, I heard her last week from like two rooms over, I think. Um, so our first superhero heresy is the Superman heresy, and this is docetism. So docetism suggested that Jesus only seemed human. And what we're going to do as we go through these heresies is what we're going to see is that the second person of the Trinity is who he isn't. So we're going to use all of these ways in which the, the early church kind of faltered off the, the lines of orthodoxy to try to build a picture of who Jesus is. So the first thing that we know that he isn't is he isn't Superman. But docetism suggested that he only seemed human but wasn't really human. And so he didn't really suffer and die because he wasn't really human. He's like Superman. Superman looks like Clark Kent. He looks like a normal person, but he can't be killed by bullets, right? So docetism says that God, that Jesus looked like a human, but he wasn't really human. And the church says, no, that's not accurate. The second superhero is the Incredible Hulk. And this is actually a couple different uh, heresies. What, is, what does the Incredible Hulk do? You guys know? What's kind of his characteristic? He what? He transforms. Yeah, he smashes. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, right, pal? So Ebionism was one of the first uh, Incredible Hulk Heresies And Ebenezer said that Jesus was just a normal guy who became Christ at his baptism. And then right as he was getting ready to die, Christ left Jesus 
And just Jesus is just a human person died. And so he kind of, you know, powered up into Christ man, and then it, it kind of went away. And the church says, no, uh, Ebionism, that, that's not true. And because what they were basically realizing is that Ebionism was teaching that Jesus was influenced by God, akin to how Old Testament prophets were, were influenced by God, but that he wasn't really actually God. And, and so you can kind of pick up the theme here that we're going to look at in the Chalcedonian Creed is that the one error is that Jesus isn't really human. The other error is that he's not really God. Okay? Apollinarianism was, was another sort of incredible Hulk heresy. So, um, Apollinaris? Is that Apollinarius? Yeah. Apollinarius taught that, uh, he was a trichotomist, okay? So he taught that humans were body, soul, and spirit, which is important to his understanding of, of who Christ was, because he said that, that Jesus was only body and soul, but that his human spirit was displaced by the logos, by the divine spirit. And at first, this kind of seemed like a pretty interesting way to think about it because, you know, these things are mysterious. Um, but in other words, what he's saying is that Jesus was, had a human body and a divine spirit, which means that Jesus isn't actually fully human. He, he's kind of both together. Um, then there's an even more mixed up heresy that we'll call the Spider-Man heresy. What happened to Spider-Man? You guys remember? He got bit. So he was a normal human, and then he gets bit by a radioactive spider, and now he's this weird mashup where he's just, he's not ever just, uh, what was his name? Peter Parker? He's not ever just Peter Parker, and he's not ever just Spider-Man. He's, he's this weird mix of both at all times. And this is a, a way that we could think of what's called Eutychianism. And Eutychianism said that Jesus' human nature uh, was combined with his divine nature, so that he was essentially a third kind of thing. Okay? So they were trying really hard to, to, to get the idea that Jesus was really human and he was really divine. But what they ended up saying was that those two elements combined and mixed up together. And so now he's not really either. He's no longer human and he's no longer divine. He's like a humo divino, which is very sort of Greco-Roman. Like it, it's kind of this idea that he's, sort of like us, but not really. And, and so the church again says, no, that's not really how this, that, that's not what we're going to call orthodoxy. Uh, the final one is not really a superhero, but it's, it's the Gollum heresy. So who was Gollum? Do you guys remember Gollum? Pete? Yeah, but who was Gollum originally? Yeah, he was Smeagol. And so what, what happened with, with Gollum, right? He, he was down in the slimy cave for so long that he basically becomes sort of schizophrenic, right? He, he kind of has multiple personality disorders. So he, he still is Smeagol, but he's also Gollum. And, and so Nestorianism taught that Jesus was divine and human, but that he had two natures and two persons. And so it was sort of this, no one could really figure out, well, when is Jesus the human doing something and when is Jesus the divine person doing something because he was all of these things all at once and he just kind of keeps bouncing back and forth. Um, so as I say, hindsight is twenty twenty. You see how incredibly difficult it could be to try to wrestle out the idea that we're talking about a thing that has never before happened. 
where there is, there is a person who is fully God and fully man, and yet those two natures are not commingled. So let's look at the, um, the Chalcedonian creed really quick because I want, I want you to see how the language in these creeds can be a bit verbose and confusing, um, but these creeds were not written in a vacuum. The church did not just sit down and say, hey, you know, what would be important for us to think about? No, they were, they were actually really embattled with one another, trying to figure out what scripture really had to say and, and what even philosophically, what sort of philosophical language would make sense to talk about the Christ event. And so what they came up with in 451 is a Chalcedonian creed. So they say, uh, following the Holy Fathers, which, which they're referring to the Nicene Creed and the early church fathers, and we all with one consent teach people to confess one and the same Lord, the same perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood. And they do the same thing like they did in the Nicene Creed. They basically repeat the same idea like three different ways so that we can all get it. He's truly God and he's truly man. So he's, a, he's got a rational soul and body, but he's consubstantial. So in the same sort of way that, that the Nicene Creed talks about, the, the, the essences being the same, he is in essence the same with the Father according to Godhood. And in essence, he is the same with us according to manhood. So again, just three ways of saying the exact same idea. And then they get to some of the other, um, the other heresies where they talk about the distinction of the natures by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. Do you guys see that down there? Kind of the, the, almost the second to last main item there. Rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Okay. What they're doing is, is basically going contra to all of these heresies that, that as the bishops would get together and discuss and search scripture and pray, they would come to realize these, these are inadequate ways of talking about who the second person of the Trinity is. And Elise is gonna, to, going to, um, unpack quite a bit for us why those things are inadequate, uh, in helping us understand kind of the practical reasons that it's important that, that Jesus truly be God, and truly be man, and not be some sort of one or the other or weird mixture of the two. Uh, the, the church had very deep theological uh, reasons that, that come directly back to gospel implications for our salvation. So Lisa's going to get into some of that and, and give us some really practical ways in which we can interact with Jesus and worship him, um, hopefully in a deeper way for having understood how the church wrestled this out over decades. Thanks. Um, one of the things I was thinking about when I was uh, talking with Steve about how he was going to approach this, and he was talking about the superheroes, um, and you know how those aligned with some of the heresies. So I won't claim this is necessarily a heresy, but one of my favorite kind of misidentifications or twistings of Jesus' identity—that's a little more modern—is this whole "Jesus is my boyfriend" theme, which we've seen popping up a lot. We see that a lot in contemporary worship songs. Um, you know, Jesus was fully man, and we can fall in love with a man, so why wouldn't that work? Um, and I started kind of thinking back, what are some examples of that in Christian culture? And uh, although we've named it really recently, I think it's been around for a long time. I was recalling a Jars of Clay song that was popular like in the mid-90s. The title of it is, I Want to Fall in Love with You. And the whole idea of it, sure that makes sense that we would want to have that experience that we have as we're falling in love with someone that's that super intense, amazing feeling, and yet it's 
we're diminishing Christ to be no more than a man when we're doing that. We are uh, dismissing him as fully God. Um, the, the Jars with Clay song says, It seems too easy to call you Savior, not close enough to call you God. And so as I sit and think of the words I can mention to show my devotion, I want to fall in love with you. And that's the chorus over and over. Um, there's another more recent song that plays on Christian radio quite a bit um, where the songwriter goes on and on about how I want my relationship to be more like falling in love with you. And I usually scream at the radio that you're wrong and change the channel. Um, again, I think we're, we're trying to put Jesus into things that we understand instead of expanding our view and really understanding him as who he is as fully God and fully man. Um, and so as I was kind of thinking about how do we turn this into something that, or how do we talk about this in a way that we can take this away um, in our lives every day, funnily enough, the last song that we sang um, this morning, Jesus Lives and So Shall I, came to mind. Um, several months ago, we sang that in church, and I often will take pieces out of the bulletin and use them in um, private devotions, but that was one that I actually took and I put up in my cube at work because it was something that I wanted to be reminded of every day. Just this idea that because Jesus lives, because of who he is, I live too. And I have this amazing life that I don't, you know, I don't have if I'm not living in who he is. Um, If you, you know, look at that, a lot of times life doesn't feel very joyous. It doesn't feel like the way we sing that song. It can feel like that day-to-day feels like drudgery or just, or just you know, okay, here we go again. I'm going into work again, going into school again. Okay, same kind of routine with the kids this morning. Um, but I, you know, looked at that, this song, and there are a few pieces that I just wanted to pull out. Um, you know, re- the repeat over again is, Jesus is my hope and trust. If we think about him as our hope and trust, how does that um, boost us through our day? He raises us from the dust. Um, He is living and reigns supreme and his kingdom still remaining. Um, And Jesus lives, I know full well, not from him my heart can sever. I think a lot of times when we get into the day-to-day, we lose sight of Jesus. We don't feel that connection with him. But just that reminder that nothing can separate us from him. Um, so like I said, you know, sometimes I take these pieces from the bulletin or things that I remember on a Sunday morning, because if you're like me, a lot of times you come in Sunday morning and we have this wonderful worship experience together, hear a sermon, and you may feel energized and excited and ready to go change the world, and then you get back into the routine and you're like, ugh, where'd all that go? Um, I don't have that with me anymore. So hopefully give you just a few pieces to think about throughout the week. Like Steve said, there is so much about Jesus and who he is. As I was kind of studying for this, there's always that overwhelming nature of like, there is so much I can say. How do I whittle this down to um, just a few things? Because there are over 200 ways that Jesus is described in Scripture. Um, And so I pulled out a few that hopefully relate well to this idea of who Jesus is as part of the Trinity. Um, And the first that I looked at is Christ as our high priest. And this is something that he can take on because he was fully human. Um, A high priest is an earthly role, um, but one that Christ takes on for us. And this is focused on in Hebrews quite a bit. Um, In Hebrews 4.14 tells us we have a great high priest. And again, because he's fully man or fully God, he's also 
in the heavens, sitting at the right hand. He's Jesus, the Son of God. So, you know, he is a priest that sympathizes and understands what we have gone through, what we go through every day. Um, and in Jewish culture, the high priest was the highest-ranking religious leader. It was their responsibility to represent the Jewish people on the Day of Atonement. And through the actions of the high priest, the people were assured that their sins were forgiven and they could be in communion with God the Father. Um, so, you know, what does this mean for us in the everyday? I think it can sometimes help us to remember that Jesus gets it, so to speak. He walked on this earth. He's seen the experience. He, he knows what it was like. He understands our trials and our suffering. Um, I love the idea that he is our sympathetic high priest. Um, he's not sitting around waiting for us to screw up. Um, we can envision him interceding on our behalf with the Father. The other idea, too, is the concept that, you know, we have forgiveness of sins, and I think this is a word we don't hear very much day to day. Sunday morning might be the only time we talk about it as we go through our uh, confession of sin, Um, but it's easy to become immune to this idea that we sin and that our actions are sin. You know, I can confess that throughout a week I may not think about it all that much, Um, But the reality is is that we sin every day, and before we realize it, there are areas of sin in our life that can really take over. Um, We can become ruled by it. We will add more sins to cover up the the first one. Um, But by remembering that Jesus is our Redeemer, that he died on the cross to save us from sin, that he intercedes on on our behalf with the Father, um, we can be freed. We have a freedom in that. Um, it, again, it's his sacrifice on the cross that allows us to have that relationship with the Father. Um, it's as the Nicene Creed reminds us is that he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so for us in the everyday, it's just when we are in that place of feeling overwhelmed, um, of feeling not in communion with God, I think it can be that time that we need to take a step back and ask ourselves, is there sin in my life that I need to recognize? Is there that um, thing that I need to confess that I'm letting get in the way? And to remember that Jesus, because he is fully God, has taken care of that for us. And then the last one that I looked at was the idea that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Again, this goes back to Hebrews 12, um, and I think it's a really unique role. And if you look at it, the passage comes right after chapter 11, where um, it walks through the heroes of the faith and really then identifies how it is that they have this faith. It's through Jesus Christ. Um, A newer translation of the NIV actually uses, instead of author, the word pioneer. And Brian talked a little bit about this idea, too, in the sermon this morning. I feel like, like Steve said, he set us up pretty well. Um, And the idea there, you know, the pioneer, he's the trailblazer of our faith. He set out the parameters for it, but he's also the perfecter of our faith. He's the finisher of it. Um, He gives us the shape of it. Um, And so I think, again, for us every day, sometimes we feel like we have to muster up our own strength, that we need to generate our own faith, that we need to, you know, seek after it in some special way. And sometimes I think we just need to sit back and say, Jesus, I believe in you. That helped my unbelief. Help me to see who you are. Strengthen my faith that I can't, I can't generate it on my own. It just doesn't happen.
Um, so like I said, I feel like that just touches the tip of the iceberg, but I hope that provides a few kind of tangible things to walk away with as you think about um, who Jesus is as part of the Trinity and uh, in your life. Anything else you Thanks, Elise. Uh, do you guys have any questions um, on the heresies or or what what Chalcedon means or any of the practical things? Whoa! Nice one. Oh, yeah, sorry. Pete wants to know, if Jesus isn't our boyfriend, then what does it mean that we are, that, the, that he's the bridegroom of the church? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't, uh, I mean, yeah. Kind of the, when I talk about, when I'm thinking about that, it's a little more this idea that we have generated that Jesus is going to meet our every emotional need. And um, it, so less about true, you know, true shape of marriage, supporting and, and all that sort of thing, but just this, like, very emotional experience of Jesus as opposed to, yeah, recognizing him as the bridegroom of the church. Good distinction. <laughs> Makes it, isn't he, the church's boyfriend, not mine? Yeah, I think uh, that's instructive in, in a lot of ways, one of which is to to recognize that the, the Bible and, and the church throughout history has used different analogies for all sorts of things, for faith, for the, for the church, for their relationship to Jesus. Um, and anytime you try to normalize one over all of the others, you actually end up cheapening the one that you're trying to make the most important. Uh, so I, I think probably a lot of what Elise is, is saying that, that we should be kind of reacting against a little bit is it, it actually cheapens that idea of the church being the bride of Christ to, to give it a very 21st century, like post-1960s kind of romantic, emotional something-something. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good question. Ben? Yeah, so Ben's Ben's question is uh is that if we're trying to say that understanding the Trinity matters, then what do we do with the first 450 years of church history where they didn't really have a very robust trinitarian theology? Like what are we saying about them? If anything? Um I can open that up. I mean, I feel like it's it's sort of akin to Old Testament saints in a lot of ways, um, where where there's this progress of relation or, or of um, revelation that happens. You know, where where the the faith that Abraham is is credited with in Hebrews, when you actually go back and look at what he's believing, it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that the writer of Hebrews is talking about with Jesus or the church. I mean, it's just it's literally just 
that he's going to have kids. And yet there's something... Right. So there's something, and there's something analogous in, in, in that faith that, to ours, and yet he still didn't have any idea who Jesus was. He had no idea probably about any sort of trinity or anything like that. Um, but he still trusted... So I think that I think it, it comes back to kind of the idea that hindsight is twenty twenty. I think there are things that um, the spirit and and just sort of general and special revelation through the church through through the people that God has chosen to work through that he he gives us information over time and truths over time for us to to kind of wrap our minds around. So I think that it's always important to then hold on to those tightly and say, yeah, we, we believe that this is true and that it, it took a lot of energy and in some cases people died for this truth. And then also I think at the very same time it can allow us to kind of release, especially things that are being debated in our own day and age, um, which was one of my, my outro points is just we're not necessarily the best when I say we, I mean kind of our, our cultural, uh, our church culture, not necessarily in town specifically, but, but kind of American evangelicalism that, that wants to hold on to the truths that we feel like are eroding all around us. Um, we have a really hard time being in process. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't hold on to things and, and stand for truth. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should fear process and be afraid of having some things that we might not necessarily be able to answer and realize, uh, which I think is kind of a, a back alley way of what your question is getting toward, is that those people in the church from the first four and a half centuries had very robust Christian lives, um, and, and they maybe didn't have all of the answers, and that's okay. They might have been Trinitarian in a, in a pre-reflective way, right? So they might have been worshiping the Trinity as it is embedded, as it, as it was embedded in their lives and rituals and prayer lives, right? In their language, the formulaic way that we say in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They might have been Trinitarian in those ways. They might not have been able to talk about homoousios or consubstantial or the technical terminology that arose in the councils. But I don't think that should d- diminish their the trinitarian shape and character of their lives and faith in the first four centuries i would just i would kind of end with that because because one of the some of the historical theologians will always come back to is that the truths that were revealed in the creeds and the councils in the first four or five centuries of church history were actually the fullest expressions of what the church already believed this is this is what any any theologian worth that salt will say it's, it's it wasn't it wasn't like Chalcedon came and introduced this holy, this radically new and unfamiliar way of thinking about God and then said, now this is orthodoxy, do it and believe it and teach it. What they proposed was, this is how we think we've always really believed that God was and how, how God was acting and what the nature, the true nature of God is. But let's put it in this, this term, this technical terminology to avoid specific heresies that are detracting from the flock. And let's make this sort of what we we bind ourselves to in the coming centuries, right? As, as a church, let's say, let's profess this so that the world knows exactly what we believe about our God, 
right? But it's no different from from what the first centuries of Christians actually believed and worshipped. It's just maybe more technically sophisticated in its terminology. Yeah. As, as I said, one second. As I said at the beginning, uh, the, there is no sort of the, the Christian doctrine of Scripture and, and Revelation is not that there's just this divine thing that drops out of the sky and all of a sudden now we all live differently. It, it's that God is at work in his people throughout time, and, and so progressively revealing himself to them. Yeah. Don? Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, what Don just said is really one of the key points to especially the Christological development in the church is that how is man right with God, which all of the best Trinitarian theologians during this time, all of them keep coming back to, if he's not fully man, then my sin is not really dealt with. And if he's not fully God, then my sin is not fully dealt with. And if he's uh, some sort of mingling of the two, my sin is not fully dealt with. And so this idea of the intercessor and, and the reconciler, that 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 true priest, the priest that we always needed, and what do priests do? They represent God to people and people to God. Well, Jesus is a priest deluxe in that he doesn't just represent each side to each other. He is each side in himself, and, and he reconciles a rebellious humanity to God's creation, which, which the thing that I, and I can take some more questions, but this is kind of a nice launching pad to what I wanted to sort of end with, is that when you look at the, the sort of the overarching theme of scripture, and I know that I hit this every other sermon, but I think it's that important, is that in the beginning, God creates a place in which he will dwell with his people. And then Adam and Eve say, actually, we're going we're gonna to try this on our own, and we want to do our own thing. And then the entire Old Testament storyline all the way into the new is, is God reclaiming his people and his place in which he will dwell with them. And then it, it it's shocking because he dwells as one of us in this place. And, and eventually the storyline is going to come full circle and he will recreate all things and he will dwell with us. And uh, I think the most amazing part of the second person of the Trinity is something that, that evangelical Christians uh, kind of shy away from. Um, but it's that in Jesus, humanity has now become divine. And it's, I'm not saying that we are going to become our own gods or something, but there is, there is a real uh, theological truth to the idea that we have now finally become fully human as, as our humanity has been brought up into the Trinity, which is why it's important that Jesus 
rises bodily and then ascends bodily. There is a human being in the heavenly realm seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm getting all caught up. Uh, any other questions? These have been really good. We do need help with cleanup today. That is a great question. What was your question? No, did you have that same question? Yeah, there's always there's always assumptive work going on. So and even even in studying like the reformers, right? The reformers assume that everyone around them had memorized the patristics. And so people in our tradition, we don't know anything about the patristics because we just study the reformers because we think that's most important. And if they knew that, oh man, they would they would not be happy. But that's a really good point. Yeah, there's always assumed knowledge that kind of keeps coming along and then gets codified. Um any other? Maybe a good way to end it. Uh, I think something that Don said. So something that Don said that made me think about this. The the theologians and bishops that you know devise the creeds. In many ways, they they were much better at being holistic thinkers than we are today in our fragmented modern and postmodern world. So they didn't they didn't really even have to think about theoretical theology over here and practical or pastoral theology over here. Everything they did was pastoral. And so, to speak more directly to Don's point, yeah, it, they, they realized the atonement implications of specific Christological doctrines, right? And the pastoral implications. If Jesus isn't really human, why do I care? I'm not going to, you know, I, he can't be my, my counselor, my, my friend, my true, you know, companion. If he's not really God, he can't save me. Right, so they, there was a really intimate knowledge of the pastoral implications of these doctrines. And I just want to say, as we look at the Father next week, who can be probably the most, if of all the, the Trinitarian persons, the most theoretical and abstract, because he seems the most distant, we're going to try to, to do a good job of, of wedding that theoretical reflections that we'll do next week uh, with some practical and pastoral implications for our lives today in the 21st century. So definitely be present next week for that. Yeah, and uh, one final thing that I'll say. Uh, try to be aware, and, and feel free to call me on it, and Brian, because I still, I still screw this up because I didn't grow up like this, but try to be aware when we pray of our Trinitarian language and what we're saying about each member of the Trinity in our prayers. And, and hopefully um, that, that shapes your own prayers in, in, your, in your own home worship lives as well, uh, which I'm going to pray right now. So feel free to listen and, and judge or join in and pray with me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is indeed overwhelming to try to describe what is ultimately a mystery. We are so finite So all of our conceptions of you, even in our most flowery language, even in our most philosophically 
concise. We are still falling so far short of who you are. And yet, Jesus, we desperately want to cling to the reality that you are fully God, that when you take away our sin and declare us right with God, you are saying that we are right with you, that you, in rising from the dead and telling us that we have now been given your resurrection life and the spirit of your resurrection, we can trust that because you are the God who speak things into creation in the very beginning, that you can speak into us new life. And Jesus, we so firmly also want to believe that you are fully human, that you understand us, that you sympathize with our weaknesses, and yet you were without sin. And so only you can reconcile us to the Father. Only you can bring a strayed humanity back into right relationship with the Godhead. I ask that the reality of that great love that you have for us would send us singing on our way this afternoon, that we would be carried throughout this week Um, just overwhelmed at the knowledge of what you have done for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks, guys. And yes, if you wouldn't mind,